we have someone's debut appearance. Jason Okandaya, how's it going? Uh, very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. Jason is standing in for, for Ash today. Super excited to have him on board. Um, a writer you should be following on Twitter tonight. We're going to be leading with whether or not a G7 deal, so that's a, an agreement between the seven rich nations who are part of the G7, can that fix the global race to the bottom on tax? Very excitingly, we are going to be speaking to a guest live from Peru on what is proving to be an absolutely nail-biting election between a leftist and someone on the far right. The stakes could not be higher and the results could not be closer. Let's go straight to our first story. Free market globalization has been a paradise for giant corporations. On the one hand, that's because they've been gifted ever-growing markets to sell their products. But just as importantly, it's also increased their power vis-a-vis governments. That's because if a country wants to raise taxes on a corporation, the corporation can just say, well, we'll we'll move somewhere with lower taxes. That means that all countries end up being scared to raise taxes. That's why it's called the race to the bottom. However, a deal struck at the G7 this weekend may have the potential to end this. The leaders of the Club of Rich Nations, including Germany, the US, Japan and the UK, agreed to implement a minimum corporation tax of 15% and force companies to pay tax in the countries they operate, not just in the jurisdictions where they house their headquarters. This was how Rishi Sunak described the deal. Well, I'm delighted to announce that today, after years of discussion, G7 finance ministers have reached a historic agreement to reform the global tax system, to make it fit for the global digital age, but crucially to make sure that it's fair so that the right companies pay the right tax in the right places. And that's a huge prize for British taxpayers. It's a a very proud moment. And I want to say thank you to my G7 colleagues for their collective leadership and for their willingness to work together to seize this moment to reach a historic agreement that finally brings our global tax system into the 21st century. Janet Yellen um, also made a statement. She's Joe Biden's Treasury Secretary. For too long, there has been a global race to the bottom in corporate taxes where countries compete by lowering their tax rates instead of the well-being of their citizens and natural environments. The G7 has taken significant steps this weekend to end the existing harmful dynamic. So how will these new rules work? Well, that is less clear. Um, On making companies pay tax where they operate, not just where they are headquartered, we can go to what the communique um, of the finance ministers says. So they say, we commit to reaching an equitable solution on the allocation of taxing rights with market countries awarded taxing rights on at least 20% of profits, exceeding a 10% margin for the largest and most profitable multinational enterprises. Now, that's a little bit of a mouthful. Um, In short, my interpretation, I'll check with my guests whether I've got it quite right, uh, is that for any company um, which is operating in in your country, be that Apple or Google, if they have a profit margin of over 10%, they can't say, well, we're not going to pay tax on our profits here. We'll pay them in Ireland where they've got 12.5 corporation tax. You'll be able to say, no, you're operating in this country. You're going to have to pay at least some of your tax here. That's if they're a company making or whose profit margin is over 10%. On the global minimum tax rate, the communique says, we also commit to a global minimum tax of at least 15% on a country by country basis. So this is what should end 
that race to the bottom. There are obviously um, a lot of tax havens that wouldn't meet that threshold. Although, you know, I'm sure we'll be discussing whether or not it should be a little higher. I'm joined by Robert Palmer, Director of Tax Justice UK. Um, thank you for joining us this evening. Good evening. From your perspective, is this agreement as historic as Rishi Sunak and Janet Yellen both say it is? This is definitely an end to what we've seen over the last 10 years, where countries like Ireland and frankly the UK have tried to outcompete each other on having ever lower tax rates. So I think we should give uh, the G7 leaders their due and say, yes, this is a step forward. As you can imagine, uh, those words you flashed up on the screen hide lots of potential loopholes, uh, lots of technical details that still need to be worked out. And as you suggested, a 15% tax rate is really low. Uh, the starting point for these negotiations, uh, President Biden from the US suggested 21%. Uh, the UK's own headline tax rate is going up to 25% in 2023. Uh, so 15% is basically the bottom of what we expected. These deals are about raw power and raw political power. This is a group of the richest countries saying we want to get more tax from some of the biggest companies in the world, uh, really excluding uh, the rest of the world from these discussions and these debates. And there are real concerns about how much money lower income countries will get from this deal. Why is that? Why would lower income countries not get money from this deal? I suppose, especially in that that 15% minimum. I know it's, it's low, but presumably that should benefit everyone because anyone can get undercut. The way the 15% works is if you have a country like Ireland, which charges 12.5%, the home country for the multinational gets to top money. As you can imagine, who are home countries for the biggest companies in the world? It's the G7. So they're the ones that are going to benefit from the most from the minimum tax rate as it's currently designed. Um, and then the other part, which is taking some money from some of the very biggest companies in the world, what we've got uh, from this weekend is essentially a political agreement from a bunch of rich countries saying this is where we want to go. The details will be have to hammered out. There'll be negotiations. But I, I really do think this is a step in the right direction. We should definitely criticise it for not being ambitious enough. We should definitely criticise it as a stitch up from the richest countries in the world. But it does represent a fundamental change in the debate about corporate tax. It represents a change from, as I said, this, this race to the bottom where countries try and charge ever lower amounts of corporate tax rate. So I, I think I'm you know, cautiously optimistic about what we can build on from this deal. Our audience will probably be watching this thinking, oh, look, the devil's going to be in the detail. It's going to be whether or not they they create these loopholes that Amazon or Google or whoever can can jump through. And they might say, look, why would these people not create the, the loopholes? These leaders work in the interests of these big businesses who they're purporting to to try to to regulate. Do you think this could all be just for show or do you think there is actually an interest for these governments in in clamping down on these big tech giants who you know, in many contexts, they're actually quite close to. So I think there are two things. One is cold, hard cash. Um, you know, governments want to try and raise more revenues. Going after corporates is a popular thing to do. Um, so I think the political calculation is how do we get more money? Well, going after big multinational companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook is, is, is a pretty much vote winner way of doing it. 
But as you say, we'll really have to see how this agreement is implemented in practice. Uh, the biggest companies in the world spend huge amounts of money to reduce their tax bills. They are expert at finding loopholes. But I just want to end by saying I do think we should be a bit optimistic. And I also think from a kind of left-wing point of view, two months ago, the UK was blocking this deal. And in the last two months, we as campaign groups have helped get this issue on the media. The Labour Party has come out in favour of a really strong, ambitious deal. And that's put pressure on the government. And they've come to an agreement. It's not as good as we want, but it's definitely better than what we had before. Very nice, positive note to end. And I suppose I should say, you know, congratulations. You've been campaigning on, on this kind of thing for a while. And it seems like the the ball is is finally moving if that's the correct yeah, phrase. Um, in any case, Robert Palmer, thank you so much for, for joining us this evening. I'm going to go straight on to our next story. The idea of the no-go zone, that there are parts of European towns and cities that are so dominated by ethnic minorities that white people cannot even enter, is a far-right myth that just won't die. And that's partly because even though it's patently untrue, it's constantly pushed by the mainstream media, including here in Britain. This weekend, the Daily Mail ran a story with the headline, British towns that are no-go areas for white people. Muslim authors' study of mosques reveals children attacked for being white, parents making families live under Taliban-like rules, and women who can't leave home without permission. Now, when it comes to no-go zones, whichever town the Daily Mail had picked, this would have been a divisive and bullshit story. There aren't any no-go zones in Britain for white people. If, you, if you've ever lived near one of the places or in one of the places they've called a no-go zone, so for me, that's that's Tower Hamlets. My experience is them calling Tower Hamlets a no-go zone and me thinking like, no, Tower Hamlets is great and there's no one I, I, there's no one that's remotely worried about going there or, or moving there. In fact, rent's really high because it's a nice place to live. Private rent is. Um, but... Um, this article was ridiculed more than the usual piece on no-go zones because of the nature of at least one area it picked out. Blackburn, white men fear violence if they enter no-go areas. Bradford, locals fear it will become an apartheid city within 30 years. Dewsbury feels like a different country and century. And Didsbury, Sharia court within the mosque, which was once a church. Now, it was the inclusion of Didsbury um, that raised the most eyebrows. That's because it's, in fact, one of the whitest and wealthiest parts of Greater Manchester. The 2011 census showed that Didsbury West was 84.1% white and Didsbury East was 77.9% white. Um, as I've said, it's also one of the poshest. Um, so many social media users uh, came out and, and, and said how ridiculous this was and how clearly it, how clear it was that the author had no idea what this place was like um because there's no way that you could you know even as i say any idea that there is a no-go zone in this country is ridiculous but the idea that you would put this in that category even more ridiculous and i want to bring up a, a a tweet from from someone commenting on this they say i used to live i used to avoid didsbury when i lived in manchester only because i couldn't afford to live there and i once ordered fish and chips in a restaurant and got eight chips piled up like jenga and the amount of fish wouldn't have filled a fish finger now, I could show you a lot more comments like this from social media, um, but I don't need to because debunking this story um, is also the Daily Mail itself. Um, this was from just three weeks ago. That's when Didsbury appeared in the paper, not as an example of Britain's no-go zones, but rather as an up-and-coming location for property buyers. So the article here reads, 
A posh and leafy Manchester suburb has been named as the most popular place for buyers actively looking for their new home. Didsbury, on the north bank of the River Mersey, is 4.5 miles south of Manchester's city centre. It is an attractive suburb with plenty of pubs and executive homes. It has been identified by Rightmove as the most popular local neighbourhood for buyers signing up to the property website to find out about properties for sale. Now, you really could not make this up. I mean, the purpose of that map that the Daily Mail put in their weekend newspaper was it supposed to be this double spread. You look at that and you think, oh, the whole country's being taken over. Look at all these hotspots that we can't go to anymore because of the Muslims. Three weeks prior, they'd been saying, this is a hotspot precisely because we think you guys should move there. Our readers, you'll love this posh, leafy suburb. So it just shows you, I think, how disingenuous, how ridiculous, how... I mean, I suppose also the editorial standards here, you know, for, for your paper one week to just completely contradict your paper three weeks previously. The whole thing is, of course, well, it's it's more than embarrassing. It's also incredibly racist, but it, it is embarrassing as well as being incredibly racist. On the issue of, of no-go zones more generally, as I say, anyone who's lived in a so-called no-go zone or near one knows that this is complete bullshit. But I, I want to bring up a couple more perspectives as well. My colleague Ash Sarkar um, put it well. Um, whenever she's away for a week, I like to bring up a tweet anyway. I just, I just can't do without her insight. She says, there aren't any Muslim no-go areas in the UK, only places that the Daily Mail are confident that its readership would feel uncomfortable in because there are too many brown people walking around. One of my favorite tweets was um, a quote tweet of that tweet from Ash. So it's someone who said, I'm A4 paper white and I live and work in one of these no-go areas. If by attacked for being white, you mean the neighbors come around with a pot of biryani and samosas whenever they have a religious holiday, then yes, I've been attacked multiple times. Uh, Jason, I want to bring you in on this story. Why won't the no-go zones myth die? I mean, this is, you know, based on this book by Ed Hossein called Fear and Loathing, which at the moment is, you know, being praised by the Times, but has been thoroughly debunked and kind of ripped apart by an author um, called Samir Rahim, I understand. Um, but I think at the moment it's very convenient to entrench this idea of no-go zones for white people um, because of the current culture war, particularly around London. I mean, I know that London doesn't quite feature in this list in terms of, you know, places which have been taken over by Islamification or whatever. But we keep on seeing, you know, these videos coming out of, you know, knife crime and people talking about, you know, Sadiq Khan's negligence and things like that. And they're trying to really cement this idea that there are certain cities and parts of the country which are, you know, in a kind of stranglehold and have been taken over and therefore, you know, the white majority is, you know, starting to go extinct in that sense. And, you know, the minorities are really running the show there. Um, and whilst it's difficult to take seriously, you know, these myths really begin to take hold. People really do believe in this idea of, you know, white extinction. People do really believe that there are parts of the UK which they simply can't go to. And it also deflects from the fact that, you know, the billionaire owner of the Daily Mail, um, Lord Rothmere, um, owns significant portions of land in the United Kingdom. Um, 30% of land in the United Kingdom is owned by gentry and aristocracy. Um, I think the stat is that half of the land in the United Kingdom or in England um, is owned by 1% of the country. Um, but those kinds of areas are never described as these no-go areas or places which you are kind of you know, isolated from um, because of class stratification. Everything always has to be kind of about race and racism. I mean, areas where I grew up in, you know, South London, um, where I grew up was always seen as a kind of no-go area in the Palmer Estate. Um, but now, as we've seen, we now have the kind of like infinity sky pool in the Nine Elms area, which is right next to the estate where I grew up. And we have, you know, all 
all sorts of yuppies and we have like those like tiny little chihuahua dogs and things like that going around now whereas when you know i was youth in those places that was kind of a place where you'd be like oh no you, you can't go there i mean i remember Next to the Patmore Estate, there used to be, or it's still there, there's this like Newton Prep primary school. It's a kind of like um, private school for posh um, children, basically. And I remember you would never see the kids kind of go beyond this like bridge because that was seen as going into the kind of like the lair of where like, the ethics are, where everyone is getting stabbed. And places like Brixton were described as that as well. Um, the ideology of white flight has always kind of, you know, been described um, for these youth areas. So, yeah, it's interesting how they're, you know, submitting this myth around this time. And I, I don't think it's without its context. And as much as we can say, you know, Ed Hussein's book is absolute bullshit. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, I think that his um, book is about an investigation of different mosques and apparently looking at, you know, um, hostility and the conclusions that he's making is basically that, you know, if Muslims can't integrate, then they should simply be deported. Um, These are credible ideas. These are, you know, completely silly solutions to um, questions of racial integration, but they are hot topics. And I think it's going to be especially a hot topic around the issue of the Batley and Spen by-election, which is coming up as well. Um, Batley and Spen has a significant Pakistani population, a significant Muslim population. And I've got a friend up in Leeds who basically kind of gave me the rundown of what that place is like and he basically said that the ethnic tensions between you know white groups there and um Muslim groups there are kind of at an all-time high and even with the you know assassination of Joe Cox in 2016 I think it was or 2017 although you know most of the major parties stood down for Labour the parties there the kind of like far-right parties which stood up it was kind of seen as almost like a referendum on Joe Cox's death mm. to basically say you know do you approve of it and it's still there was a sizable vote for some of these far-right parties so yeah I think it it fits within the kind of broad media economy trying to look at these kind of like race potential race riots and kind of like race revolutions supposedly popping up across the country. Um, whilst these are mostly mythical in the sense that there are no-go areas for white people, it is true that there are pockets in the country where actually like tensions are bubbling and we are actually going to start, you know, seeing this coming up, you know, the increase in um, revitalised far-right movement and how that's looking into culture wars at the moment and, you know, the kind of brouhaha around BLM as well. Mm. I mean, we're going to talk about a brouhaha about BLM in a moment. I suppose first for you know, of the responses to this story in the Daily Mail, I mean, beyond just sort of plain debunking it and saying, you know, loads of people saying, I live in this place, it's clearly not a no-go zone, uh, have been people saying, look, the only reason there are no-go zones in this country is because, as you say, rents are too high because of people like Lord Rothermere hoarding the land. I have seen a lot of other people, POC, saying, actually, there are some no-go zones in this country, but they're no-go zones for non-white people. It's when you go to areas where you think people are going to you know, look at you funny or where you're going to be more subject to racial abuse than when you're in a multicultural part of, of the country. I don't know if those, if you saw any of those comments or if you had any thoughts about whether or not there are no-go zones for non-white people in Britain. I mean, there absolutely are no-go zones for non-white people in Britain, but I think that something which was, you know, quite interesting was the response to the inclusion of Didsbury. As you said, you know, the kind of response was like, you know, this is a kind of like affluent area. And I read up on some of the articles that you mentioned and they were basically saying, you know, this is like wag central, like, you know, all of the kind of like Manchester footballers and their wives live here. Um, but there was no self-awareness when people were kind of saying this. It was, it reminded me of this kind of line that someone once wrote about the kind of difference between like Remainers and Brexiteers where Brexiteers say they're going to let all of these Turkish people into the EU and, you know, the Remainers are like, oh, no, of course we wouldn't do that. It kind of had that kind of veil of, like, liberalism and saying that, of course, that area isn't effective with Muslims. You know, we're white there and we're affluent and we're posh. Those kinds of areas are no-go places for people like me, for visibly Muslim people as well. Um, they're areas where you might fear, even if not necessarily, like, you know, 
physical racial abuse you might fear some kind of you know hostility it's interesting the area where um the young boy the young 14 year old boy i don't want to get his name wrong because i can't remember so i'm not going to say it um was murdered in the past week would that now be described as a no-go area for black people um will we have articles basically you know determining different areas where um, you're more likely to experience some kind of you know racist incident because um even the links that story has to you know Stephen Lawrence are quite interesting because you know the area of southeast London uh, where Stephen Lawrence was affecting Lynch did in some ways become a no-go area for um Black people, the BNP had set off a kind of like library there, which operated as offices. Um, they used to go on marches. They used to put up posters um, around St. George's Day, which had St. George slaying the dragon. That kind of area made, made it very visible that, you know, this is not a place where you can go. And, you know, even like, say, like the bearings of the St. George's Cross and things like that, it, these are very visible um, markers of, you know, no minorities here, no immigrants here, no black people here. You can't name parts of the country where you have that kind of like open anti-white display of hostility, either in the past or now. So, you know, it, it is fragrant bullshit to suggest there are no-go white areas, but there are absolutely no-go areas for PSE. This is never about whether or not you can go to an area, it's whether or not you own an area. I think that's that's the yeah. issue of no-go zones, really, isn't it, saying that we no longer as white people own this space. We have to share it with other people and we don't like that. I'm sure we could talk about this topic for a long time. We're going to move on to our next story. After being postponed for a year, Euro 2020 begins this week. I would have called it Euro 2021, but it's up to them. Alongside drama on the pitch, we already have an idea of what political controversies will accompany this tournament. In England's warm-up match on Sunday against Romania, all players took the knee in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement and a bunch of fans booed. Jason, I want to bring you in on this. What did you make of the booing? Were you surprised, disappointed? What's your reaction? I mean, I'm not really a football fan, but I know that in the kind of like England fan base kind of conducts itself like the social wing of the British Army or something. And it, my understanding is that, you know, both here and in other countries, whenever there's a kind of like English football victory or there's a match of some sorts, you know, they go around singing two World Wars, one World Cup. Then they have the audacity to say, that, you know, keep politics out of football when people decide to take a knee um, to mark their respect. So, you know, of course, it's not surprising at all. I've heard lots of people, you know, talk about the poppy and stuff when they say, oh, people who say you should take football out, politics out of football, and what about the poppy? The, the, the two World Wars, one World Cup is a very good example. And let's go to England manager Gareth Southgate. He had a really strong response, actually, I think. Let's take a look. Well, the first thing is that, you know, we are collectively really disappointed that it happened. Um, I think you have to put yourself in the shoes of a young England player about to represent his country. And because... We're all trying to support, move for equality, move for um, supporting our own teammates, some of the experiences they have been through in their lives. Um, some people decide to boo. I think those people should put themselves in the shoes of those young players and how that must feel. And if that was their children, if they're old enough to uh, have children, how would they feel about their their kids being in that sort of situation? So the most important thing for our players is to know that we are totally united on it. We're totally um, committed to supporting each other, supporting the team. Um, we feel that more than ever, we're determined to take the knee through this tournament. 
we accept that there might be an adverse reaction and we're, we're just going to ignore that and move forward. I think the players are, are, are sick of talking about the consequences of should they, shouldn't they. They've had enough, really. That to me was exactly right. You're saying they're doing it in solidarity with victims of racism, including you know racism experienced by the players themselves. And you're saying it's something the whole team believes in. It's non-negotiable. I'm not here um, to you know listen to and weigh up the arguments. We've had this conversation within the team. We're all agreed. We'll be taking the knee. And if that boils your piss, so be it. Obviously, he didn't use quite those words. Now, someone whose piss was boiled um, by Southgate's defence of his players was Nigel Farage. Let's take a look at his response. Gareth Southgate doesn't seem to understand that the BLM movement is not only Marxist, but divisive too. England fans will hate this. They just want to watch a game of football. Calling the Black Lives Matter movement Marxist or anyone who takes the knee or supports the Black Lives Matter movement Marxist has become a bit of a meme on Britain's far right. In fact, I think Marxist was trending precisely because of this. Obviously, on this show, we don't think there's anything wrong with being a Marxist. In fact, we think it's, it's, it's pretty cool. But a response from many people who, who take the knee or who are in support of this action is saying that it's kind of implausible to suggest that these millionaire footballers by taking the knee, are endorsing some sort of Marxist ideology. And this is a much simpler symbol of solidarity against racism. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And, you know, that video of Gareth Southgate, like, he's really quite emotional about it. And what I get the sense of is that they he wasn't quite prepared for this level of backlash and hostility. And that's because, you know, I've, I've said this before, but I think that the Black Lives Matter movement at large at the moment was built and is still built on quite an unstable coalition. Because you have people who just think, you know, I don't want my teammates to, you know, throw bananas and you d I don't want the audiences to be making chip noises like they've done at some black football players. And then you do have Marxists. You do absolutely have Marxists. You do have people who view anti-racism as the work of undoing racial capitalism. So when it comes to whether or not, you know, people should embrace, you know, Marxism or not, you know, I'm all for people embracing Marxism and these ideologies. And it's obviously ridiculous, um, you know, to claim that these England football players are Marxists at all, considering their wealth portfolios. It's interesting to work through the kind of contradictions and tensions and what's also been conflated as well. Because of the actual institution, Black Lives Matter UK, um, which does define itself as Marxist, which does define itself as pro-Palestinian, or at least, you know, it has members who are Marxists and is, you know, incredibly more radical. Because this is seen as the more kind of like radical end of BLM and because it uses the name BLM, it's always used as the kind of front um, within the right-wing press. It's always said, you know, any reference to BLM is therefore invoking this very specific organisation and its specific operations and ideologies. Um, that's not to, you know, make any kind of condemnation myself of the ideologies and the hidden motives of BLM, but it is being conflated with general support for, you know, at least the sentiment Black Lives Matter. And so it's kind of made the term kind of like unsayable without, you know, you basically pledging that, you know, you align yourself with Karl Marx and you align yourself with communism and you align yourself with this kind of dismantling of the state. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's interesting. Whether or not people should embrace it, I mean, if footballers want to redistribute their wealth, I'm, you know, very open to that. I mean, Marcus Rashford um, topped the philanthropy list. I think it was something like that in the Times. Um, so, you know, 
I, I don't see a particular issue with that. I think that football um, can be like an inherently politicised sport, particularly because, you know, it's populated by so many working class boys who come through through raw talent. Um, but yeah, a lot of people found themselves in a really kind of sticky situation. And I think that an interesting example of this, you know, moving away from football even, say, for example, um, Pretty Little Thing, Boohoo, all those companies like that. We last year came out with their kind of shoddy Black Lives Matter statements and said, you know, we're in solidarity with Black communities and we're going to start supporting Black businesses and things like that. And then I think like a month later, the story about the Leicester factory workers broke and it was found that they were exploiting um, immigrants, um, majority, you know, um, South Asian women and garment workers. And it's like that very chain of exploitation the fact that they're subcontracting to infinity to the point where you know these women were being paid poverty wages is entirely counter to the principles of black lives matter as you know most people understand them um it's not just about you know treating people nice and you know not saying racist things to people it's also about the working conditions of you know people of color and black people it's also about the conditions that places closest to death as well and so these different you know corporations and these different brands can't quite understand that actually they can't declare, you know, make these statements about Black Lives Matter when they are not just complicit, but when they are literally running the machinery, um, which is placing people's lives closer and closer to danger and closer and closer to death. And that's not a really a charge that I can make of the England football team or the England football players or something like that, because it's not a corporation in that sense. But uh, it's interesting. I, I kind of think, you know what, this is what you guys are signing up for. And I I almost kind of like the challenge. I mean, obviously it's, it's difficult for the black football players and, you know, they are kind of bearing the brunt of that. But it's also very interesting to see white people actually kind of drawing and seeing that actually if you want to make the stand and say, you know, I, I want to support my colleague because he's getting racist abuse, you might also want to look at this entire spectrum of, you know, oppression and action which is happening outside because, you know, as much as, you know, what's happening to a, you know, fellow football player on the pitch is, you know, condemnable, that black football player was also not the kind of ground zero. He's also not the most oppressed person in the United Kingdom in the context of... Um, the kind of like food chain of, you know, who's being fucked over by the state and who's not. So I I think maybe perhaps it could help some of these footballers to kind of like stop and thinking, you know, why is the reaction so aggressive if it's just about, you know, how we treat people to think actually beyond that. And um, perhaps we can start to see the in the football teams become more politicised. I would be quite interested in seeing that. It might um, invigorate an interest in football, which I don't have at the moment. Well, it's interesting you say that because it does seem that in this situation, once again, they found themselves on the other side of a political debate with the Prime Minister. So the, the previous obvious example here um, was Marcus Rashford campaigning for free school meals over the summer holidays. And Boris Johnson eventually had to back down on that particular issue. I think eventually in autumn, there was a period where there weren't free school meals over the holidays because in that period of time, Boris Johnson didn't back down, obviously. Completely outrageous, he didn't. It didn't make him look particularly good. But on this one, again, he seems to be saying, look, these footballers might think one thing, I think another. The Prime Minister's spokesman refused to condemn the fans booing. So it's obviously very different to what Gareth Southgate was saying. Gareth Southgate saying it was very disappointing to hear, to hear them boo. The Prime Minister refuses to condemn it. On whether or not the Prime Minister supported taking the knee, the spokesperson said, the Prime Minister's spoken on the record on this issue before. On taking the knee specifically, the Prime Minister is more focused on action rather than gestures. We have taken action with things like the Commission on Racial and Ethnic Disparities, and that's what he's focused on delivering. Now, Jason, I, I want to know a couple of things from you. So, so one, what do you make of this idea? You know, Boris Johnson is almost, in a way, taking on the language 
of of the radical left by saying, I'm not interested in symbolism, I'm interested in action. But then his example of action is the Commission on Racial and Ethnic Disparities, which was pretty much written off as just an exercise in saying racism doesn't exist. And at the same time, what I want to know is, do you think this is a mistake for the Prime Minister to constantly find himself on the other side of political debates with footballers, who are obviously some of the most popular, influential people in, in the country? Or do you think this is you know, potentially an intentional strategy, a bit like Donald Trump and 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 players in in American football. I feel that actually quite strategically Boris Johnson tends to keep his interventions in the cultural to a minimum, um, all things considered. I think that you tend to hear from Robert Jenrick or um, from Oliver Dalden more. And, you know, on the kind of statement of, you know, um, I'm more into action over justice, I mean, it... It is a case of, you know, kind of co-opting the language of, you know, like radical anti-racism and of the left and, you know, kind of co-opting that idea of, you know, I'm not about the superficial and the excesses of it. Um, but then the action that ends up getting taken is, you know, by redefining what he considers to be racism. And with the commission on, you know, race and ethnic disparities, I think that's something that was kind of like missing from a lot of the public discussion from that was that it's attempting to shift away the definition of racism from anything institutional, anything that implicates government, um, anything which implicates our prisons or our education system to look at individuals and individual liberty. Um, in a sense of, you know, autonomy and self-determination, because that's the kind of language of this government about, you know, levelling up, about helping, you know, individuals kind of unlock their powers. And so when the Conservative Party, you know, at large starts speaking about racism, they talk in defence of, say, Preeti Patel or Kemi Badenoch by people saying, you know, they're, you know, seen as they're kind of forced to think in one way or they're being, you know, disciplined by the left and by other minorities because they're conservatives and because there's, you know, this kind of perceived incompatibility between being conservative and being a black or brown person. And so that the focus is kind of there. And so I imagine the kind of action that he imagines is that, you know, he's going to appoint some black secretaries of state or things like that. That's action for Boris Johnson. Action for him is, you know, taking kids out of prison for, you know, minor weed offences. Like, action for him isn't actually, you know, implementing a comprehensive public health strategy um, for knife crime in um, London, for example. Um, it's all about benefiting those around him and kind of enabling a kind of like black and brown Toryism and enabling this kind of um, share in the capitalist pie um, for certain black and brown people. That's action for him. Um, so, yeah, and on whether it's wise for him to be kind of more in football as well, since we have no seriously functioning opposition at the moment, I mean, he seems to be getting away with it. You'd think that going up against, you know, Marcus Rashford, his very popular footballer, would be something which would massively dent his popularity. And I think that, you know, from Dominic Cummings' testimony, it was, you know, revealed that his advisors were saying, you know, you don't want to pick on a fight with um, Marcus Rashford. Um, but I think that what's kind of aided Boris in this sense is that, you know, he's meant to be seen as this political figure. And the way Marcus Rashford's campaign was run was to make sure that it was, you know, party neutral and politically neutral. It's about the whole idea of, you know, it's not politics. It's just about, you know, feeding kids and it's about, you know, benevolence and things like that. And, you know, he has to do that because of charity law, because if you're working with charities, you can't be explicitly political partisan. Um, but then to the kind of wider public, it does mean that it becomes, somehow it becomes depoliticised in their heads. Um, it's kind of more seen as, you know, a kind of dispute that's taken to task and a kind of like celebrity philanthropy 
philosophic influence um, rather than a kind of like real interrogation of government and the very basis of government and the very basis of how this conservative government works. Um, you know, it should be, you know, the um, Labour Party kind of defining the ideology of the conservatives and how they're operating right now and the reason why um, Marcus Rashford's campaign works. It can't explicitly state itself as political, but it's necessary because of the consequences of the past 11 years of Tory austerity. Um, but where the fuck are they? <laughs> so, yeah, he's getting away with that. Where the fuck are they is, is a good place to finish that segment on. Um, obviously, a reference as a reference to the Labour Party, the footballers, they are actually um, standing up to be counted. So thank God for that. An English cricketer has been suspended from international games due to the resurfacing of racist and sexist tweets he sent as a teenager. Ollie Robinson made his debut for England in last week's test match against New Zealand, but his suspension by the England and Wales cricket board pending an investigation means he will miss the second test, which begins this Thursday. The racist and sexist tweets were sent in 2012 and 2013 when Robinson was aged 18 and 19. Now, before the suspension, but after the resurfacing of the tweets, Robinson made the following apology. On the biggest day of my career so far, I'm embarrassed by the racist and sexist tweets that I posted over eight years ago, which have today become public. I want to make it clear that I'm not racist and I'm not sexist. I deeply regret my actions and I'm ashamed of making such remarks. I was thoughtless and irresponsible, and regardless of my state of mind at the time, my actions were inexcusable. Since that period, I've matured as a person and fully regret regret the tweets. Today should be about my efforts on the field and the pride of making my test debut for England. But my thoughtless behaviour in the past has tarnished this. Over the past few years, I've worked hard to turn my life around. I've considerably matured as an adult. The work and education I've gained personally from the PCA in my county and the England cricket team have helped me to come to terms and gain a deep understanding of being a responsible professional cricketer. I would like to unreservedly apologise to anyone I've offended, my teammates and the game as a whole in what has been a day of action and awareness in combating discrimination from our sport. Now, you can tell he's a cricketer, not a public speaker, but it was a comprehensive apology. The reference he made to combating discrimination in sport involved an anti-racist T-shirt the players had worn um, on the day his tweets emerged. So was the decision to suspend Robinson over the top? Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden thinks so. He tweeted today, Ollie Robinson's tweets were offensive and wrong. They are also a decade old and written by a teenager. The teenager is now a man and has rightly apologised. The ECB has gone over the top by suspending him and should think again. Jason, I want your thoughts on this. Do you stand with Oliver Dowden or the Cricket Board of England and Wales? I don't want to say that I stand with anyone um, because I think the <laughs> issue is quite complicated and I don't want to get cancelled on Twitter for my views on this. Um, but I think the problem really is that, you know, social media technologies are still quite new to us and we don't know how to respond to the fact that what we might have once considered the kind of private space, you know, tweeting to your 300 followers some bullshit, you know, 10 years ago, now has particular implications for the public realm because we kind of assigned that importance to Twitter and someone could be quite an anonymous character and suddenly be propelled into public fame um, through sporting achievement, through journalism, through whatever, and then have someone trawl through their historic feats and find some kind of more wrong. And uh, I'm become firmly against the kind of media practice of trawling through someone's historic tweets because my first question was what's there is what's the reason that these have come up and what was the reason that someone searched for them did he do something racist now 
did he do some kind did he make some kind of transgression now which meant that you know someone thought oh let's look if he's got a track record or are journalists routinely going through the social media profiles of typically young people um to find news stories um it's it would be easy to send to this now because, you know, they were wild tweets and I don't think anyone's arguing that the tweets were fine. They were sexist. They were racist. You know, unequivocally, they were pretty disgusting. Um, but the examples of when this has happened um, to other people, it's usually been people of colour. I mean, there was the footballer Mason Holgate who made, you know, lots of homophobic tweets, which were one day just randomly unearthed. And I can't remember what consequences there were for him, but, you know, he had to make significant apologies and that's now on public record. And, you know, I as a gay man myself, I remember thinking, I, I just don't know why this has been brought up now and why I need to see these. I thought the same when they were unearthing as well. I just thought, who has gone and searched that out and said, you know, search out this? Um, probably the most sinister example of this was perhaps Zara Sultana when she was a PCC for Coventry South. Um, the really fucked up thing about those was that the screenshots were taken like 30 minutes after the tweet was sent years and years and years ago. So someone had this loaded in a database waiting for her to become public enough to then release them. And it then makes me wonder, you know, did I say something really off? 10 years ago that someone's held in a database and is going to release in five years time when I do whatever. Um, I think that there's a kind of risk um, if left-wing people cheer this on and say, you know, good, get this racist out of here, that we kind of just kind of bang the drums for a lot of kind of intrusion into our lives and we give consent to employers to start dictating over our personal lives and dictating over our personal conduct and historical personal conduct as a way to deny employment. That kind of thinking is also what is maintaining things like, you know, criminal records where you have to be vetted and screened before you get a job and you need to declare whether or not you robbed some sweets from a corner shop when you were 15 years old or something like that i can't in good conscience invest myself in the idea of you know stripping someone of their current position um based on historical conduct because i also ask you know who is the accountability for as well i mean they were racist tweets is it that i need to ask for accountability for this guy that i don't know i know people are racist you know in their private lives all the time every day and i don't know that it can really be the job of individual people to constantly take these people to task or even people from my past life who have been racist to me in you know some context i mean when i was at school there was racism and particularly homophobia all the way up until i was 18 you know, all the way up until my final years, year of sixth form, I was getting homophobic abuse in school. And I kind of think, you know, based on this logic, can I now go and name one of the boys who was homophobic to me, email their employer and say, I want accountability and I want this person to do the job? I think some people would say, you know, that's quite unhinged and that's not really the way to go about this action. So why do we now do this for public figures? I just, I think it's an own goal and I think it's the kind of power that we shouldn't be so happy um, to have and wield over people. And we also shouldn't allow the Conservatives to kind of like monopolise a kind of moral common sense um, because most people do have the instinct that, you know, perhaps people shouldn't be overpunished um, for things that they have done to young people. And I know that people keep saying, you know, 18, is it really a teenager? It is. Um as much as, you know, an 18-year-old does no right from wrong, absolutely. He knew that those tweets were wrong. Um, he was probably saying that because that was the time of, you know, the kind of like edge lord internet culture. Um, and perhaps there is some kind of accountability process that is necessary for these kind of old tweets. But because social media technology is so new, we just don't know. And so we have to go to the more extreme end and say, you know, this person needs to lose their job or this person needs to be outcast from society. And I, I don't know what we actually gain from this. And so I don't know what's meaningful gain for anyone. I find it very frustrating the way now everyone's saying like, oh, the left have cancelled this guy. It's like, we had nothing to do with this. <laughs> you know, there, there, was well, no, there was no one on the left who was saying this guy cannot 
play for England anymore. This was a decision made by the Cricket Board of England and Wales, who I imagine aren't closet Marxists. Yeah, well, I also think that, you know, there's lessons to the left in kind of saying, you know, whenever something is brandished in front of you and it seems to be defeating your enemy, you actually need to assess whether or not it's going to have consequences for you as well. I mean, it's public knowledge, you know, that one time, and these were tweets I made in real time. I had tweets which were put up in the Daily Mail and it had significant implications for my personal life. And I remember I was in my second year of university at the time and I remember my biggest fear was, am I going to get a job in the future when this employer can literally just search up Jason Okudaya, first page Daily Mail. And what was interesting was that I, at the time, uh, actually had a job. Um, obviously, I kept that private because otherwise they would have emailed my employer. Um, I had a job. I was in a kind of uh, an internship. And obviously, I had to tell them straight up, look, this has happened. Um, I don't know how to deal with it. And I remember, you know, they didn't suspend me. They kind of cared about my well-being and my welfare. But I think what was good and important of them was they kind of made the judgment that, we shouldn't be taking disciplinary action on what someone has done in their private life that has not quite brought the company into disrepute. Now, if you're a public figure, inevitably anything you do is attached to your kind of brand, your company, to the English cricket um, team. Whereas I, as someone who at the time was just a private citizen and not particularly well known at all, um, could kind of get away with it because, you know, this is behind the scenes and my name wasn't publicly associated um, with this company. Um, but looking at that kind of grace that was extended there, I do think that was the right decision of the company. But it becomes difficult when it's someone you, do, you disagree with. Lots of anti-racists would be like, well, you can't be racist to white people, so Jason should keep his job. Um, other people will say, well, this person was actually racist and that person should lose their job. And I just think, you know, based on equality law, what I said technically was racist because equality law defines racism as against any ethnicity based on the quality of law you can be racist to white people so i don't think people should uphold the law as you know this kind of like barometer and this measuring tick for whether or not we take caution action and whether or not we consent to this um putativeness because it will be used against you and it has been used against people so yeah that's kind of my view on that from the left-wing accounts i follow people seem to be generally agreed in this case that people shouldn't lose i mean he hasn't quite lost his job it's been suspended it, quite likely be welcome back i assume but that you shouldn't have harsh punishments for things that people tweeted when they're teenagers it's just not good practice it's not going to end well um jason it's been an absolute pleasure being joined by you tonight on tisky sour um i'm sure we're going to have you back soon if you're up for it Absolutely. a brilliant debut <laughs> and thank you all for joining us tonight you've been watching tisky sour on navarra media good night this broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.